need to apologize to our audience because I don't know if you noticed, but our uh, my audio last week was terrible. I mean, it was like almost unlistenable. I think the, my mic wasn't hooked up properly. I don't know what the hell's going on. So anyway, it was terrible. So back to normal. We tested it and everything got on early and tested it. So hopefully it should be fine, but it was crap. So welcome to our podcast. This is Old School. I'm Emily and that's Lauren. This is our 12th episode and we're so happy you're here. Please take a moment to give us a rating, maybe even a review. We really appreciate it. Also, um, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Old School Podcast. Okay, so this episode we're covering February 15th to March 6th. I look at, I look at, I have notes. <gasps> Good job. Wow, you actually yeah. hand wrote it. You're old school. Oh, so starting with April, starting off with a, a tragedy, uh, February 15th, 1961. I actually just learned about this event just recently. Well, I, I have things that aren't on your list. Oh, do you want to say something for the 15th? I have something from 1903. Holy shit. Okay. I just thought it was a fun fact. The first teddy bear goes on sale. Oh. Toy store owner and inventor Morris Mitchum placed two in his store window. And he had asked the president, Teddy Roosevelt at the time, permission to use the name Teddy for these bears. And once these things started going, they sold like hotcakes and everyone's selling teddy bears. But the inspiration for this teddy bear was because of Roosevelt and he um, was a hunter and there's different, you know, differing versions of the story. But uh, one of them is that while hunting, he came across a injured black bear that was tied to a tree by one of his guides. And there's conflicting stories that either he set the bear free or he shot the bear out of like pity because it was like wounded and dying. Yeah. But that little nugget story kind of spiraled into him having these teddy bears made in his like, in like his honor or whatever. And then because either way he showed like compassion for the little bear. Yeah. But then it ends up being a teddy bear that everyone freaking has. I just couldn't believe that was like the first, like, that's amazing. I mean, I guess that's the first time it was officially called a teddy bear. Kids had bears and shit, but that's where the name came from. So anyway, that was 1903. February 15th, 1903. Okay. And then what year do you have? What, do you, what year do you have? It was you jumped? February 15th, 1961. Oh, 1950. Oh, okay. Go go ahead then. Cinderella's Cinderella premieres. Disney's Cinderella. Oh. Which is one of my favorite ones. Yeah, it's a good I one. that one. Um, but it was, I didn't know this, that it pretty much saved Disney from going bankrupt because it followed a bunch of flops like Pinocchio, Fantasia, and Bambi were all big box office bombs and they were like severely in debt. I can't believe those were bombs. Did that surprise you? Yeah, they said that they they um you know ended up picking up popularity after like re-releases and all that stuff. But yeah. I mean Pinocchio is not one of my favorites. I think it's kind of warped and I don't love that. It scared me when I saw it as a kid. The scene you're like, talking about, especially the scene with the donkeys, with the kids yeah. turning the donkeys. Yeah, I remember yeah. thinking that was so beyond fucked up. And then Fantasia. I, I love that. I love it too, but there's a lot of boring parts in Fantasia. Yeah, it's slow. It's slow. It's because it, it was meant to be educational. It was Walt like Disney my, trying to like, we, teach kids. You know how they would release that in the theater? Like every, yes, yes. Like, my like dad made us go. My dad would make us go every time that because it was like his favorite. And I remember, I remember falling asleep during the dinosaur part. 
like yeah. <laughs> movie theater. And I try, I put it on for the girls once to watch and, uh, they, you know, they like like the fairies and stuff, but, and then I would fast forward to like the, the dancing elephants or the yeah, dancing and hippos stuff, and stuff. Yeah. There's a, there's a big chunk of it. That's kind of slow. And then Bambi, I couldn't do without Bambi. So those, those three were big bombs. Yeah. So then Cinderella was released totally was um, a hit had three Academy Award nominations. And they were like, this is how we do it. We make a princess story. <laughs> we we make a princess story. This is how we get the meat in the seats. Yeah. Make a fairy tale <laughs> yeah, princess exactly. story. Give up on this animal shit. And all right. So that's all I have for. Uh, so you said it, I interrupted you. I stepped on you. Were you saying it won two Oscars or it was nominated? Oh, it was nominated for a few Oscars, um, including best music and original song. Wow. Bibbidi, what is Bibbidi, the original Bobbidi song? Boo. What is that? Oh, Bibbidi Bobbidi Boo. Because someday my prince will come as Sleeping Beauty, right? That's sleep. I mean, no, like, that's Snow White. Snow White. Okay. Cinderella had Bibbidi Bobbidi Boo. It had um, A Dream is a Wish. A Dream is a Wish, that one that she sings in the tower. And the mice are, I remember the mice are really funny yes, and cute. Cinderella, Cinderella. Yeah. Song. Yeah. That's got some good ones. Cute. I love that movie. But yeah, anyway, great. they're my only two for that day. So that was 1950. Okay, so jumping to 1961, uh, Sabina Airlines Flight 548 crashes, killing the entire U.S. figure skating team. I don't even. I never even heard it. Like I didn't know about no. this. No, it's. I mean, to me, it's like kind of epic, though. Like the entire figure skating team. The plane was en route from New York to Brussels, Belgium, and it was that was a stopover. Its final destination was the. Prague for the World Figure Skating Championships. So the big, a big deal, you know, aside from the Olympics, like huge deal. Uh, all souls aboard perished, 72 people total, and 18 of them were part of the figure skating team, and 16 were family and friends, so coaches and things like that flying with the, t- with the team. So a big chunk of the plane was associated with the U.S. figure skating team. The World Championships was, were set to start on February 22nd. Uh, the plane crash occurred as the plane was descending to land and the cause is still unknown, which is weird. Uh, it was likely had to do with the mechanism that stabilizes the tail wing. We don't know any of the, pa- these were all, people were all famous at the time. I mean, not necessarily household name famous, but famous to some degree. Notable passengers included nine-time U.S. ladies champion turned coach Maribel Vincent Owen and her two daughters, one of which was Lawrence, her nickname was Lori Owen, who was the reigning U.S. ladies champion. Lori had just been featured on the cover of Sports Illustrated. She was only 16 years old. So, I mean, really promising future. After the tragedy, the world championships were canceled. So even though some teams had arrived from other countries to participate, they, they just could you know, they thought it was inappropriate, so they canceled it. The crash made front page headlines all over the United States, and uh, President Kennedy issued a public statement of condolence. The legacy is a little weird from this because obviously it dealt a blow to the U.S. figure skating program. I mean, literally, it wiped out the entire team. And we had been, the U.S. had been dominating in that sport since the 50s. So I have this interesting quote. History.com had in, an interesting article on, um, on this uh, event. Uh, Prior to the crash, the U.S. had won the men's gold medal at every Olympics since 1948, when Dick Button became the first American man to do so. While U.S. women had claimed Olympic gold in 1956 and 1960, after the crash, an American woman, Peggy Fleming, would not capture Olympic gold until 1968, while a U.S. man, Scott Hamilton, we know, 
would not do so until 1984. So it like set the whole thing back for you know, our program back. Hmm. And as a result, a couple of retired athletes came out of retirement to represent the United States. Like you've got to send someone and you know, they, your country needs you kind of thing. Also younger skaters who, who were, you know, not really like they were, they basically were launched into a figure, figure skating higher up um, competitions because there were no older skaters with more experience to compete with. That's wild. They were pushed forward. And um, they gave this example of 15 year old Scott Allen who won bronze in the 1964 Olympics. That was three, just three years after the crash. He was, he became one of the youngest, that's one of the youngest medal winners in history, Olympic history. The crash also led to an influx in foreign coaches as I mean, most of the American ones were on the plane. So a lot of the coaches, there was, you know, coaches coming in from Europe that were, you know, getting a job essentially to help rebuild the U.S. figure skating team. And then, of course, the, probably the obvious, most obvious legacy is that there's now an official rule that um, mandates that the, the figure skating teams can't fly together. Yeah, I never, I never knew that was even a thing, but that makes sense. I it makes mean, sense. It's like how the vice president doesn't fly with the president. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, I mean they say yeah. that also about the Royal family. I think they're not ever allowed to like share a jet or whatever. Cause if it went down, they'd all be gone. So I thought that was so sad and weird and it's really sad. So that was 1961. Oh, that young girl thing. with being on sports illustrated and having all that potential. And I mean, she was probably going to be go on to sweep the Olympics. I mean, yeah. it's, so, it's just so sad for February 16th. I did have something cool. So I don't know if you have anything for that. I have one. I have, um, I didn't put the year. What is it? I can look it up. I can look it up. Uh, put in Grace Bedell, B-E-D-E-L-L. Abraham Lincoln in on February 16th, whatever this year was, uh, made, a, made it a point to thank this 11-year-old Grace Bedell, who had written him a letter a few weeks before his election. 1861. 1861. She wrote him a letter a few weeks before the election, pretty much telling him that he should grow a beard because it would oh. make him... <laughs> <laughs> it would make him more likable. That is so funny. And he wrote her back and was just like, you know, I've never had a beard. I don't think I'm going to start now. And I'm sorry, it was 1860. I got the year off by a year. 1860. So he then he wins. And then on his like inaugural tour, he was making all these stops from Illinois to D.C. And he stopped in New York and was speaking at the big thing. And she was there and he called her out. And How cute! Like brought her up and like pretty much acknowledged like I got the beard now because he ended up growing it and thanked her. Um, nice. But I I in on a uh, Wikipedia they had like her letter and it was just so cute. I have yet got four brothers and part of them will vote for you anyway. And if you let your whiskers grow, I will try <laughs> and get the rest of them to vote for you. <laughs> you would look a great deal better for your face is so thin. She's right. She's actually right. He looked too <laughs> gaunt without a beard. Yep. And she's like, all the ladies like whiskers and they would tease their husbands to vote for you. And then you would be president. My father is going to vote for you. And if I was a man, I would vote for you too. But Aww. I will try to get everyone to vote for you that I can think of. And then she's talking about like her baby sister, but it's so cute. And he freaking grew a beard. That's so cute. <laughs> and that's like an important feature for him. That's how we remember, you know? Yeah, right. So yeah, I thought that was cute. That's the only thing I saw for February 16th. That's adorable. That's really adorable. What I have for February 16th is not adorable. Um, no. <laughs> it is interesting though. 1929, the mysterious Doheny murder-suicide. Did you this is another one. Of, you never heard about I never this? Heard of this? 
I think I only know about it because I I live in LA. So and it's an First LA of all, story. I'd like to comment that so many things happen in LA. It's like so we weird. could just do weird history of LA because every time I'm like looking up stuff, there's yeah. so much stuff in LA. Yeah, because you could argue that like, oh, I'm biased because I I'm one of the researchers, but the other researcher is in New Jersey. So yeah, right. Yeah, you're noticing it too. So no, it's constant. So Edward Doheny was an oil baron, and in 1929, his only child, his adult son Edward Jr., what they called him Ned, was living in the famous Greystone Mansion, which had been built and given to him by his father as a wedding present. So it's this big, beautiful. It's still there. It's, you can take a tour and stuff. But it was on this like multi-acre giant estate, and it was one of the costliest uh, building um, projects of the time. And uh, it was a wedding present from Edward Sr. to his son, Ned. And on the night of February 16th, Ned was found shot to death in a guest room in the mansion. And he, with his friend and secretary, Hugh Plunkett, lying dead nearby, also shot. When the story first broke, the police investigation concluded that Ned Doheny had been shot by Plunkett, who then turned the gun on himself. The official story states that Lucy Doheny, so that's Ned's wife, had heard a gunshot. She and the family doctor, who for some reason was there that night, it's bizarre, I have no idea what that's about, went to investigate. They claimed that they found Plunkett outside one of the East Wing guest bedrooms distraught. He saw them, ran into the, the bedroom, and shot himself. His body was lying a few feet from Ned's. So this was so weird. And, it, and you know, these guys, the, the Doheny family is very wealthy. There's a lot of things named Doheny in Los Angeles. The movie There Will Be Blood is based on the book, loosely based on the book Oil, which is based on uh, Edward Doheny. So, so he's a big, you know, his big deal and very powerful, obviously. So it's, it really sounds like he just shut up the story. It was the talk of the town. What is this? Who, why, you know, why did he kill, why did his assistant kill him or whatever? And then kill himself, like what's going on? And it was all, everything was all Twitter. And then uh, it just disappeared. They did. There wasn't even an investigation, really. It was the DA didn't announce there wasn't going to be an investigation. The the case is closed, and you know it was all tied up with a bow. So uh, the initial speculation was that this was somehow connected to the recent Teapot Dome scandal, which was arguably America's first like political scandal. And I don't know if you ever learned about it in school. I barely remember it. I just did like a brush up on that while I was learning about this. It's one of those like it's a scandal that's from the past that is laughable by today's standards. I mean, it's basically bribery. That shit happens all the time. Shit's legal now. <laughs> That's just baseline. <laughs> yeah, ridiculous. So, and so I have this interesting quote that kind of sums up the Teapot Dome scandal and then like what this, the official quote unquote official story is of the murder-suicide. In 2002, historian Richard Rayner explained the context. Oil discovered in 1892 near the La Brea Tar Pits by Edward L. Doheny drove the great LA boom. By the early 1920s, Doheny was one of the richest men in America. In 1992, he sent his son Ned and Ned's chauffeur, Hugh Plunkett, to Washington, where they handed $100,000 in a black leather satchel to Interior Secretary Albert Fall. In exchange, Doheny got the lease on a naval oil reserve worth, worth some $100 million. It all came out as part of the Teapot Dome scandal that brought down Warren Harding's administration. So it was basically bribery, right? I mean, that's, he's, he's paying the, the guy who's in charge of giving leases out for the lease. So both Plunkett and Doheny were due to testify on the incident when they were found dead, and both had been shot in the head. 
despite the sensational, this is what I was saying, despite the sensational nature of the death, the papers went quiet about it and no real investigation took place. A popular rumor was that Plunkett shot Doheny after he requested a a raise and was denied. Others thought Plunkett and Doheny were lovers and that one shot the other and then himself in a fit of passion. Or perhaps Lucy had shot both men after discovering their secret and the family doctor offered to be a witness to keep the scandal of a gay son and a secret and keeping Lucy out of prison. That would also explain this weird ass. Why is the doctor that like bizarre? Yeah, it would right? make more sense that like she called the doctor like, hurry, hurry. There's two men have been shot in my home and the doctor shows up like he wouldn't be hanging out. Like, why was he hanging out there? I couldn't find any answer to that. It doesn't make any sense. It's also rumored that it was Doheny who shot Plunkett and not the other way around. So the official story says that this guy, Hugh Plunkett, old friend, they were army buddies, whatever, shot Doheny and then shot himself. But an investigator at the time, the forensic investigator at the time was like, was basically said, I actually think it's impossible that Plunkett fired the gun because Doheny's wound was from a shot at close range while Plunkett's wound was from farther away. So you shoot someone to kill them from farther away and then you put the gun like to your temple. The Doheny as as the shooter theory would also explain why Ned Doheny is not buried in the family plot, which is a Catholic cemetery. Is instead been was laid to rest in a secular secular cemetery near Plunkett. Actually, the Catholic Church doesn't. For listeners who aren't Catholic, the Catholic Church doesn't, or I don't know if it's still this way, but they're not okay with suicide. So um, you wouldn't be allowed to be buried in a Catholic cemetery if you had committed suicide. Or that's a good question. I wonder if that rule still applies. Yeah, I have no idea. And I I kind of think it's funny that they wouldn't even waive it for like this billionaire. No, sorry, still not allowed. But I don't know. That's these are all just rumor and speculation, you know. But it's just fascinating. And the the mansion is still there, and you can take two, you can rent it out for your fucking wedding if you want to, you know. I mean, it's just like, could you imagine being that rich where you, you know you're able to like say, oh no, we're not investigating this. It's closed. Let's not I know. You just pay off the papers. <laughs> Same. Move on. Bananas. The mansion, by the way, is in Beverly Hills, and it. What is it now? Do people? Does someone live in it or is it like a... It's a public, um, yeah. like the city of Beverly Hills owns it and you, you can take a tour. They like docents and shit and you can rent it out for a wedding and there's a garden. And, Have um, you ever been through it? No, I haven't. I know. Isn't that weird? There's a lot of LA like like landmarks that I never went to. I don't know why. I mean, maybe I did one of the kid and I don't remember, but but yeah, so that's what happened. I don't know. Hmm. Well, we don't know what happened, but... And then I don't have anything for the 17th or 18th. Neither do I. Oh, I d- actually, I take it back for the seven for the 18th. I have cherry Coke debuts, which is delicious. Yes. I love cherry Coke. In fact, when it's like an option, I usually get it because it's kind of a treat. So every once in a while, a movie theater will have cherry Coke. We, when we were kids, when we wanted a cherry Coke, I guess I'm really old because I remember life before cherry Coke, but we would get a Roy Rogers. Did you ever order a Roy Rogers when you were a kid? No, I never heard of that. It's a Coke with grenadine. It's like a Shirley Temple, but it, it's Coke instead of seven up. I'm sure I had it. I just don't think I knew it was called a Roy Rogers. It's delicious. Yeah, it's a Roy. The two big kids drinks like if you're at a wedding. Well, now kids don't drink soda the way that they did. But like when I was a kid, that was like if there was like a bar, I could go up and ask for a uh, um, Shirley Temple or a. I used to love a Shirley Temple. Oh, I I still love them. They're they're so underrated. They're um my grandfather when we were kids, he was a member of the Elks, and so whenever there was like a funeral or a party, we went to the Elks the Elks Lodge. And then I remember Daryl was the bartender. He was this old dude who like looked like a walking cigarette. And <laughs> I would always get up there and be like, Daryl, give me a Shirley Temple. And I loved it. And then cut to when I'm in my 30s and I'm at a 
surprise party for my husband's cousin. Oh, I was sitting with the birthday guy's daughter who was like, I don't know, 10. Yeah. And I was like, you should have a Shirley Temple. She never had a Shirley Temple oh. before. So then I was telling the bartender to give her a Shirley Temple. He's like, do you want a dirty Shirley? I went, oh, what's what? a dirty Shirley? Sounds- and it was a alcoholic dirt, uh, Shirley Temple. It was delicious. Oh, I bet. So I forget what the booze was. Yeah, so that sounds great. Shirley Temple's ginger ale and grenadine. Yeah, grenadine. So it was, I don't know if it was vodka or what, but it must be vodka. I'm guessing vodka, but I don't know. It was delicious. That sounds delicious. I didn't know that existed. Yeah. But. And then I remember when there was some event that I would go to. I can't remember what it was. And and, and there were the bartender. I remember it just, you know, you could tell he was. He didn't get to interact with kids that much. So when me and my bro would go up and order our, our Roy Rogers or our ginger ale, he would put like six cherries in it. <laughs> it's oh. great. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's like a fruit salad and they're like floating around like eating. It's, I love those gross ass cherries when I was a kid, those um, maraschino cherries. I still have them because I, I did my my kids, I think, are the only kids that get a Sunday every night before oh. bed. Oh, my and God. It, and I put a cherry on there. That like, is so cute. Cherry or not? We you always have You know what? That you're ruining them for other people's house. They probably go to like their friends' houses and they're like, "Can I have a Sunday for dessert?" <laughs> and the mom's like, <laughs> well, "What?" One of, one of my friends came over and she's just like, "Marin's still getting her uh, freaking Sundays every night." I was like, "Yeah, like whip." I always have whipped cream. I That's always have funny. sprinkles, chocolate syrup. That is so cherry. cute. That is so cute. Yeah, maraschino cherries are great. They are great. Okay, so February twentieth. I just have a. I just have a premiere. Oh, I have the 19th. Oh, sorry. Jumped, uh, jumped there. I have a few things for the 19th. Wow. Okay. So the first one was February 19th, 1884. Did you ever hear of an Enigma outbreak? What? No. Yeah. no. So there was an Enigma outbreak, which was the largest tornado outbreak in American history. So within a 24-hour period, there was like 37 killer tornadoes that were- what? Yes, that spanned in that period. Why is it called an Enigma? That's an Enigma outbreak. So it was at least 37 tornadoes over this 24 hour period that spanned from Alabama, Georgia, Illinois, Indiana, Kentucky, Mississippi, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Virginia. And back then they were saying that the, <laughs> this is quite a stretch. The death toll was from 370 people to 2,000. <laughs> Oh my God. So it was a big Get it stretch. right, guys. Jeez. But then there was Wikipedia said that there was a survey that was done by Signal Corps in 1889 that said there was 184 fatalities. And then another one happened in 1974. There was another outbreak, and that ended up being like what? more catastrophic. But yeah, that many tornadoes in this little period of time sweeping around all these states. And it was weird. an enigma outbreak. What a weird title. Like, a, really weird to call it. So that was in 1884. And then in 1910 was when, <laughs> which I didn't know, was when Mary Mallon, Typhoid Mary, was first released oh. from her first quarantine. I didn't know she was quarantined for like decades. Yeah. I, I heard, like I know this story. Times. She yeah. is like, it's one of those stories you start reading about it and you kind of feel bad for her. And then I, it starts I did to feel progress. Bad for her. Yeah. It starts she, to progress. And then you're like, okay, Mary, this is getting fucking ridiculous. <laughs> Wash your freaking hands, Mary. Dirtbag. <laughs> and just like you, you, you know what though? Like, I still think she didn't believe it. She didn't she, believe that yeah. she had it. But how many coincidences could you see? I mean, you know what I mean? How many? So, so Mary was an immigrant from Ireland. Yeah. Picked up, got in New York, ends up getting like job as maid and then a cook. 
And she like bebopped around all these different families. And every family she hit was a typhoid outbreak. People were dying. Yeah. She would just like peace out and go to her next job because the whole family's now got typhoids and she's got to find another job. Ugh, back on the dole, Mary. I know. <laughs> Everybody's dropping like flies around me. <laughs> but she was asymptomatic. So, you know, she didn't feel, she didn't, they didn't think it was her. She wasn't right. sick. And then, yeah, but I didn't know that they like imprisoned her. And yeah, they said they didn't was- have a choice. They were desperate. They, like, I, if I remember correctly, she had been, they tried to explain it to her. Like, she, she sounds a little like, I don't mean to like impugn the Irish because I don't want to like further Irish stereotypes of Irish immigrants, but like, she seems a little simple, right? I mean, yeah. The, the quotes uh-huh. of her saying, like, I'm not sick, I'm not sick. Like, she didn't get it. She didn't get yeah. that, like, you don't have to be, have symptoms to be sick. Yeah, but I don't, and it wasn't like, but that was like, even in the healthcare community, they were saying that that wasn't even like that the concept of being like a carrier wasn't even like a thing. Right. So it was just banana. The whole thing was bananas. Her first quarantine was from 1907 to 1910. And then they finally let her go out. And then she had, and they told, they fucking told her, they were like, you can't work as a cook. You can't promise you you won't work as a cook. You have to do your best to be like hygienically, you know, like wash, like do the things you have to do to like wash your hands and like, don't be a dirtbag. Prevent transmission. Don't be a cook. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and I realized that sucks because that was her profession. Like that's how she was, she was a trained cook. And then she got a job as like a laundress and then she got hurt and then she wasn't making as much money. So then she went back to cooking and then the outbreak started again. And then she was quarantined for like 20 something years. Yeah, They gave up. They were like, we're putting you on an island. You're locked up on an island. And I remember like, this is so gross. Like if you want to be, if you want to be grossed out by like this, this is what grossed me out about COVID. Cause if anything, it just told us that so many people are dirtbags who don't wash their hands. Because totally. the, ma- the main issue, the, so they were saying that from what I read, typhoid Mary, so typhus, like the, the virus or whatever, it doesn't survive heat. So like if, you, if you're like, if you're making like a stew and you've got, if you're a carrier like she is and you didn't wash your nasty fucking hands and you're throwing it all in a stew pot, it's, it's gonna okay. Die. It's going to die. But Mary's specialty was... <laughs> I, <laughs> Cold cuts. <laughs> Gross. She was like famous for her fresh peach ice cream. I just picture, have you ever cut up a peach and your hands are all gooey and stuff? Peach. Like, yeah. <laughs> like she's like, her, she's like with her fucking dirty ass hands and fingernails and she's cutting up this peach and sliding off the, off the counter into the, the cream or whatever, <laughs> the ice cream maker. And like, she didn't wash her hands. Licking first. her fingers, yeah. getting that sticky ice cream off. Coughing all over it and everything else. Um, so that, so you don't cook ice cream. So there you go. So she, she was giving it to people for, yeah, but what a life mayor. Yeah. I feel, I mean, I feel bad for her. Cause like she literally was locked away, but at the same time you were warned. They were, be- the you had a were chance, you, you had a chance yeah. to go back out there. The doctors were begging you like, Oh God. Yeah. It's crazy. So anyway, that, <laughs> how's that, has that I been think- made into a movie? How's that not a movie? It's fucking insane. I don't know. Bananas. I don't think it has. But anyway, I didn't know that she was, I mean, I've always heard typhoid married and stuff and I knew the general concept, but I didn't know that she was like, you know, locked away. And then in 1913 was when the first prize was put in a Cracker Jack's box. (laughs) Finally. (laughs) How long have they been in business for? Whatever. I'm so glad that happened because one of my best memories growing up, we would always go to my grandparents' house and my grandpa, every time we would leave, he'd have a Cracker Jack box for us. And we would just tear into those things driving home, hoping we had the tattoos. Yeah, the tattoos and were the best thing. 
Yeah, I freaking loved Cracker Jacks. The tattoo Jacks, also but... really went with the, the candy cigarette that your grandma would give you. <laughs> <laughs> really completed the look. <laughs> that was a regular pirate back then. Um, I loved Cracker Jacks. I love those like gross little like brown nuts. peanuts in there. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> They're great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So good. Anyway, that's all I got for, t- uh, for February uh, 19th. Okay. So February 20th, all I have is um, a premiere of one of my favorite movies. 1952, the premiere of African Queen. Did you ever see that? No. And oh, it's this, really this is good. one thing that this, doing this podcast, I realize how many movies I haven't seen. And you've seen a lot of old movies. And so I really like yeah. Yeah, old ones. Yeah. But no, I've never seen African Queen. It's uh, Humphrey Bogart and Catherine Hepburn. And they're they're like aging. They're like more middle-aged in their career. And they older adults. Like she's like a quote unquote spinster. And he's like a kind of like a. I don't know. I don't want to say loser, but kind of like a drunk old guy. And, and it's a love story and it's the sweetest love story, but it's also like them, they have like this kind of like a, it's almost like a road movie, but they're on a boat. They're kind of on a mission and the boat is the African queen. That's what it's called. It's just so sweet. It's just the sweet love story, like atypical love story. Cause they're, you know, kind of old and they, they'd phoned it in and didn't think they'd be, they'd fall in love and they're just adorable. So it's very good. It. Yeah. And I'm not even a big Catherine Hepburn fan or Bogart that's fan. Why I, I mean, they're fine, that, but that's why I sent you that clip today. Yeah. Yeah. Her. Lauren sent me the, that famous clip of Catherine Hepburn uh, mouthing off to uh, Barbara Walters <laughs> <laughs> about how she doesn't like to wear pants and Barbara Walters needs to get the fuck over it. That's not a direct quote, but she says something funny like that. Um, yeah. She was amazing. <laughs> For uh, in 1959, on February 20th, I have that Jimi Hendrix, at the age of 16, had his first gig in Seattle. Wow. In like the basement of a synagogue. And then the band fired him for playing too wild. <laughs> oh, because he was probably like just riffing on his guitar or whatever. Yeah, and they're like, yeah, this isn't going to work for us. You're going to yeah. have to leave Jesus the band. Christ. He probably yeah. was a child prodigy, like 16. Damn. I know. Right? Yeah, that's awesome. Do you have anything else for the 20th? Nope. So February 21st, mine, uh, mine's 1980. Do you have anything earlier? Do I have anything earlier? Earlier you know, all than my stuff's in the 1800s. Yeah, yeah. You like to go way old school. 1902, first brain surgery. Whoa. Yeah. Oh, but God. It was, was it a, um, you know what? Uh, lobotomy does a bottomy. <laughs> What's it? <laughs> it was by Harvey Cushing, who was the first, considered the first neurosurgeon. But he was, you know, the doctor who came up, um, you know, discovered Cushing's disease and oh. Cushing, Cushing reflex. And isn't Cushing's disease the thing that JFK had? I just pulled that out of nowhere. It's probably completely wrong. No, he did have something. I don't know if it was Cushing's. It's with like your cortisol levels and yes. stuff. It's usually he had Addison's disease. I'm sorry, oh, he had okay. Addison's disease. And then the Cushing reflex, which is like with intracranial pressure stuff, with like your okay. blood pressures and stuff. It's like a relationship between that kind of stuff. When I looked up Harvey Cushing, I didn't even mention when he first did it. It just started going into all this other stuff because he was like a legit neurosurgeon. Yeah. And then in 1965, Malcolm X was assassinated, which could be a whole other podcast. Oh, yes. Yeah. I had that. I, I was, I, I had too many deep dives. So I decided to skip Yeah. That well, one. that one, that, again, I, and I, when I saw that one, I was like, this would be an amazing deep dive, but that is not my specialty. Yeah. That will this... come up with Cracker Jack, Jack's facts. Yeah. I'm not going <laughs> to. Saddest thing about the saddest thing about Malcolm X assassination is he was kind of assassinated by his own people he was assassinated by mm, the yeah by the um muslim the nation of islam yeah it's like a bummer but mm-hmm. um well <laughs> next year okay yeah um mm-hmm. my february 21st is 1980 was nine to five by dolly parton hits number one so i it's kind of funny because i 
just recently started appreciating the song 9 to 5 as a protest song in a weird way because it's kind of a worker's anthem. Mm -hmm. And we just talked about Give Ireland Back to the Irish in the the last episode. Dolly said she never intended that. She said in, in an interview that the song is specifically talking about the women in the movie and their horrible boss, which makes sense because, I mean, it is for... You know, she was trying to break. Um, yeah, and yeah. it is for a movie called Nine to Five. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the boss is a dirtbag piece of shit. And yeah, I freaking love that movie. The movie's great. It's oh, great. I love it. I, I still kills me. Like the radical in me reads like the like my favorite line is it's a rich man's game no matter what they call it and you spend your life putting money in his wallet. I was like, damn, damn Karl Marx. Um, so yeah, so I have that for February twenty first, and then. February 22nd, I have something for 1934. I have something for 1992, so you can go first. Uh, it happened one night premieres. and I haven't seen that one either. See, I actually think you would really like that one. It's it's a, like a screwball comedy, and I think it's so funny. That's the famous one. It's Claudette Colbert and Clark Gable. Is that with her putting her leg out? Yes, that she puts her leg out. Um, and she's so funny. She's really funny about it. And their banter and their dialogue is really natural and normal. It's not like a lot of old movies. It's like, don't you feel like, Oh, but people don't talk like that. Like, why are you talking? Mm -hmm. You know, but theirs is great. And they, you know, it's a love story and it's a road movie and it's, I thought it was pretty funny. So it, it basically swept the Oscars. It, It won best picture, best director, best actor, best actress, and best screenplay. So that was 1934. I gotta watch more movies. I can stay awake. Yeah. My February 22nd one is from 1992 when Barbara Streisand crashed SNL during the coffee oh. talk during the coffee talk episode. I do. Someone I follow on Instagram shared a clip of that. And I was like, why are they sharing this random clip? And you just solved that mystery for so me. She, it was, I believe Roseanne Barr was hosting. Well, Roseanne Barr, Madonna and Mike Myers, who's the coffee talk lady, yes. uh, Linda Richmond does his skit and that specific characters obsessive barbara streisand yeah yeah like butter like butter like butter like, so yeah like, so you know they're stereotypical you know jewish uh like women. long island kind of yeah, yeah and their long nails and yeah yeah but he was parroting his mother-in-law oh was he yeah um who was in the audience the night that this happened oh my god that's so funny barbara streisand was performing in town that night and Lauren Michaels kind of orchestrated the whole thing. So their reactions are real. They didn't know she was coming. So that's amazing. She just kind of crashed it and they all freak out. And that's so funny. I got to rewatch that. I still remember that. I remember. I do. Like, I remember that. I do. It. So funny. So, so it's funny. really funny. Okay. 23rd. Uh, I don't really have anything. Actually 23rd, 4th and 5th. I don't have anything. The 23rd was 1954 was when they started the mass inoculation against polio. Oh, with the vaccine at, at a freaking grade school. Could you imagine them doing that uh, with a COVID vaccine these days? Yeah. <laughs> would let that happen. It's weird. But yeah. I wonder so, if there were anti-vaxxers about that. I don't know. That's a good question. Someone should research that because, well, there wasn't the internet back then. Yeah. Like I mean, people just were like, take this. You have to take it. It wasn't like they couldn't do their own research yeah. back in 1954. Yeah, yeah. But there was like anti-maskers and anti-vaxxers in like, I know 1918, there were like pictures of people protesting and stuff because mm. they don't nobody likes ever the, having the government telling them what to do people throw a hissy fit oh, totally yeah you just don't want to be someone forcing you or making you do something that but maybe polio was scary enough that i don't know whatever i don't know but yeah that's where they that's the first mass inoculation that was the 23rd and then i don't have anything till the 26th 
Okay, what do you have for the 26th? 1975, which I thought was crazy. And the first, the, the fact that they put first, first live kidney transplant was performed on television on the Today Show in 1975. What? Yeah. What? Ew. Why did they Fuck say with your first? Breakfast? I don't know because I don't think there were numerous kidney transplants performed on television, but it makes kind of sense. Uh, it makes sense why they did it. So it was in 1975 by Dr. Kuntz, K-O-U-N-T-Z. And the whole thing was a publicity thing to um, raise awareness for um, kidney recipients. Of course, donor, organ because donation. The list and, you know, all these people just you know, die waiting for an organ. Right. And they got like 20,000 20, callers called into NBC to offer, like, to donate. But I mean, is, when when you say live, I mean, did you, was it like, it was like a magician sawing someone in half? I mean, was this all like visible? <laughs> I don't think it was done in the studio, but I guess they had but, it But I mean, somehow. somebody was filming it? Like, I guess so. Or they had so it in this. Maybe they tell like they, they had cameras in the operating room. So Katie Couric had her colonoscopy televised. I guess that's they could true. Anything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the seventies were really weird. I mean, can we just add this to the list of weird shit that happened? He in was 70s? probably smoking while he did it. Yeah, too. yeah. <laughs> smoke into the into the cavity. <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> so gross. But I thought it was pretty cool that. 20,000 people call into, you know, yes, absolutely. I mean, I'm an organ donor. Shit, take my body, do whatever you want with it when I'm back. I worked on a um, kidney transplant floor. And, oh, really? You know, but it was kidney and liver. So we were the floor that we had all the patients that needed those organs. And then we got those patients after they got their organs. So just seeing those people yeah. that come back in for readmissions because of, you know, they're they're so sick and they yeah. just need this organ and they're waiting for so long and that was like the best thing when like you'd come in and then they'd look at your census and you'd be like so and so's in the they're here they're waiting to go to the or first thing because there's an organ ready for them you get so they're next in line them. yeah yeah it's just sad but yeah so that makes sense why they would do it to get raise awareness for it absolutely uh just kind of morbid but <laughs> um <laughs> hey who am i to judge it's not serial killers, but yeah, I mean, so I, the next thing I have is February 27th and it's late. It's 03, 2003. Do you have anything? Okay. So I have, um, Fred Rogers dies at age 74. So I was just going to do a, a little bit about Fred Rogers, mainly because I don't, uh, this is probably a controversial opinion, but I actually did not like the movie about him that Tom Hanks starred as Mr. Rogers. I mean, I thought Tom Hanks was fine, but I just, I, I didn't see that, but wasn't there another, like a documentary? There was a documentary. Him? And again, that was great. I, I didn't like the documentary. You know why? Because neither of these films covered his life. They just covered the show. Like, I just want to learn about what I love Fred Rogers. And I, the, I want to learn about the childhood of the person who, who is so great that we, America loves them as a national treasure. And Neither of these movies covered that. They just basically covered the show. Mm. I just, I, whatever happened to the good old fashioned biopic, you know? I, people mm. don't like it anymore. They just don't want to see like so-and-so as a kid, so-and-so as a teen, whatever. But I don't know. I think for someone like Fred Rogers, it's interesting. Like, But anyway, so I just wanted to do a little bit about his, um, his life. So he was born March 20th, 1928 in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, which is outside Pittsburgh. He was a shy introvert often home from school because he suffered from asthma. So he'd be home recovering from bouts of asthma. He was also overweight and was bullied because of it, which is sad. He was an only child 
until his his uh, parents adopted a sister when he was 11. So he was pretty lonely. Uh, he overcame his shyness by high school and was able to make some friends. And he even was elected like student body president. And he excelled with his grades. He was a very good student in high school and college. And he graduated from Rollins College in 1951, which a batch with a bachelor's in music. So that makes sense because he's clearly musically inclined. Uh, he married uh, Joanne, an accomplished pianist, in 1952, and they had two sons, John and James. And he worked in television after he graduated from college. And the reason he did that is he did not like television at the time, especially children's programming. He thought it was loud and he just didn't like how the audience, the children's audience were, were basically treated. So in 1953, he helped create a show called The Children's Corner, which was hosted by fellow children, children's television host, Josie Carey. She's apparently pretty famous. And the show was award-winning and featured many of the puppets that you know, we know now because they were on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood also. Um, while working on The Children's Corner, Rogers went to Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, graduating in 1962. And in 1963, he became an ordained Presbyterian minister. He also attended the Pittsburgh Graduate School of Child Development. So from 1963 to 1967, he hosted a show for the Canadian Broadcasting Broadcast Corporation called Mr. Rogers, One Word, which was his first time on camera. It's this show, this Mr. Rogers, that basically like is where Fred Rogers honed his like style and the concept for how he wanted to structure a show. Even the, the set, all that stuff, the sneakers, changing his sneakers when he gets home, all that happened on this show first. Then Mr. Rogers... Uh, neighborhood began airing nationally in 1968 and ran for 895 episodes. It was videotaped at WQED in Pittsburgh and then broadcast nationally by the National Educational Television, which is PBS today. And the first season was in black and white, really. So from, I'll just have a quote from Wikipedia that like sums it up. Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood emphasized young children's social and emotional needs. And unlike another PBS show, Sesame Street, which premiered in 1969, it did not focus on cognitive learning. Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood focuses on a child's developing psyche and feelings and sense of moral and ethical reasoning. Fred Rogers used his early childhood educational concepts in, in all of his lessons on the show. The Washington Post noted that Rogers taught young children about civility, tolerance, sharing, and self-worth in a reassuring tone and leisurely cadence. He tackled difficult topics such as the death of a family pet, sibling rivalry, the addition of a newborn into the family, moving and enrolling in a new school, and divorce. An example of this is that if just a few days after the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy on June 7, 1968, he wrote a, a special episode just for handling the tragedy. So how kids might view it and Rogers wrote and edited all episodes, played the piano and sang for most of the songs, wrote 200 songs and 13 operas, created all the characters, both puppet and human, played most of the major puppet roles, hosted every episode and produced and approved every detail of the program. Oh, and there's a famous viral video you've probably seen from 1969. So I guess President Johnson, before he left office, had proposed a $20 million funding bill for PBS. And good old tricky Dick Nixon wanted to cut that in half to 10 million. And there was uh, hearings by the U.S. Senate Subcommittee on Communications. And even though Fred Rogers was not a household name at the time, he was asked to testify because he was experienced in um, children's television. And he very, very calmly, almost like weirdly patiently, explains why his work and the work of other 
you know, hosts and, and producers on PBS is important. The the subcommittee chair, Senator John Pastor, was so moved by Roger's testimony that he advocated for more funding for PBS. So all in, it wound up being $22 million instead of $20 million. So they got, not only did it not get cut, it got more. Oh, and I just have these funny, like, little factoids about Mr. Rogers, because I think so many people grew up with him, and, and you feel like you know him, but maybe you don't know these little things, because the man didn't talk about himself at all. He was colorblind. He was a vegetarian. Uh, he was also co-owner of the magazine Vegetarian Times. He was a registered Republican, but did not vote along party lines. Oh, and I have in parentheses because I, I wanted to note that a 1950s Republican is very different from a Republican today. He loved to swim and swam laps every morning for exercise. And he, his, his death was pretty close to his retirement. He retired in 01 and was diagnosed with cancer in 02. And he died in 03 at the age of 74. Hmm. I feel like it should have been a bigger deal when he died. But I think I love him more now as an adult. Like as a kid, you're just like, oh, I like this guy on TV. When when I think of being really little, like watching those kind of shows, like, yeah, I, I think I found his show to be boring. Like I appreciate who the man is now, like being an adult yeah. and knowing about him. Yes. Yeah. Do you have anything for the 28th? Mm-mm. Oh, you had, the, you had the war album, right? Yeah, that's right. Or- I did have 83 U2 releases the album war yeah the only thing i mentioned about that one was that i didn't realize because you don't i don't know you don't think about that but that was their first number one but that that was the album that knocked thriller from the top of the uk charts oh i didn't know that okay mm-hmm. cool yeah because I, I don't know I, I can't like there's such totally different genres of music i wouldn't even think they were like at the same time but yeah but yeah that was my only blurb about that but anyway yeah, that's another protest song on that Sunday, Bloody yeah, Sunday. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's a great album. Um, yeah, so I just said, and then 10 years later, 93, was the Branch Davidian. You know, it was like a siege that turned into, a two-month siege that turned into I a can't fire. I it was two months. I remember that thing going on forever. And I, I just remember I was too young to appreciate that it, it was as bad as it was. Like, I guess I didn't realize that, like, I think people look back on it as like the FBI fucked up royally. So basically for those listening who don't know what the fuck we're talking about. So um, <laughs> the um, Branch Davidians were a religious sect led by a weirdo named David Koresh. And on the 28th, 1993, February 28th, the ATF attempted to execute a search warrant because they had reason to believe that the Branch Davidians were hoarding weapons, illegal weapons. And this led to a shootout and four government agents and six Branch Davidians were killed. So after that, it just became this like siege that, and the FBI showed up to try to help the ATF. 51 days it went on. And to try to end this siege, the FBI launched tear gas. Shortly thereafter, a fire engulfed the compound and 76 members of the Branch Davidians were killed, including 25 children, which is really sad. A fire investigators determined that the fire that the fire was set in three locations by Branch Davidians. So, I mean, that's disputed. You know, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of conspiracy theories about this. And a lot of like, it, it kind of inspired a lot of like militia type people to, you know, this is why we need to be armed because look at what the government did to a, a bunch of Americans who just didn't want to give up their guns. But I mean, David Koresh was a piece of shit. I, I haven't watched that documentary on him, but I mean... So, you know, I don't know. I, I mean, obviously, I, I don't want anyone to die. I, didn't, I'm, I think it's terrible that 76 people died. Jesus Christ. But yeah, I just think it's wild that it went on for so long. Yeah. But so weird. Crazy to me. Yeah, he was, yeah, he was a total creepster. Yeah. 
I don't have anything for February 29th, which is leap year, leap day, um, whatever the fuck it's called. Oh, <laughs> this is random, but I saw on the 29th in 1692. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> the first people were accused of witchcraft in Salem, Massachusetts. Oh, shit. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And when that's a whole other, that's all that could be. A, yeah whole episode oh my god so fucking scary crazy shit are you having are you having independent thought which (laughs) (laughs) yep did you see that movie did you see that movie witch the horror movie yes the one it's by that cool director accents are so crazy that the one where their accents are so like thick it's hard to even see what they're saying with the girl with from uh and they're speaking in that weird old english die and yeah that's with the girl with from queen's gambit right yeah the big eyes yeah, that was good oh, that was twisted but it was good daniel and i finished the movie and i was like well i think the scariest thing about that movie was the 1690s like <laughs> <it was fucking laughs> depressing my god can you imagine like uh, yeah ugh. okay so march 1st i think the first thing i have is 1954. i don't have anything so i had never heard of this i think it's really interesting march 1st 1954 four puerto rican nationalists open fire in the u.s house of representatives bananas to me uh representatives had just voted on a bill when gunfire erupted from the visitors gallery have you ever been to d- the house in dc like or the senate you know you could, there's like a gallery i don't even know if it's still like this but when i was a kid you could go in and sit and like watch it's boring as all get out but you can go in and watch them i don't think i ever did that but it's it's so boring but but anyway there's a gallery you look down you look down on the floor and that's where they were so house speaker joseph martin of Mass- massachusetts <laughs> declared a recess while taking cover behind a pillar as the shots were firing. Yeah, don't want to miss any of the like important rules of the Senate floor. Like the shooters fled the gallery, uh, but three were apprehended almost immediately by visitors and one was apprehended the next day. They were militant, like any means necessary for, for Puerto Rican independence. Five congressmen were wounded in the shooting and the shooting was so unusual, like it was so unheard of that the pages and other people were running to pay phones and calling for an ambulance because they didn't have 911, but they were calling hospital, send an ambulance. There's been a, there's been a shooting on the, on the, on the house of representatives floor and the hospital kept hanging up on them, the switchboard. Cause they thought they were like um, <laughs> pulling a prank. Oh God. <laughs> so weird. So the four sh- shooters were convicted and sentenced to jail terms varying from 16 to 75 years. So it's kind of bananas Four people shot up the house of representatives. I don't have much for March 2nd either. I don't have anything else for March. Oh, okay. Well, I have March 3rd is kind of important to our childhood. March 3rd, 1991, the beating of Rodney King is caught on camera. So I was watching TV in my parents' like guest, they had like a guest room and it had a shitty little TV in there with rabbit ears and everything. And one of those boxes, like it didn't have a remote. You had to like sit and the box made this ka-chunk, ka-chunk, ka-chunk as you went down like the channels. And you had just, it was this tiny little TV. And I was watching some show. I don't even remember what it was. And it was Sunday night. And you know when they advertise the upcoming news on local television? They used to say like film at 11 or whatever. Now, and they had a clip. They had a teaser. And it was a teaser of Rodney King getting beaten, which we all would subsequently watch ad nauseum for the entire year after that. And I was, I remember I was, so this was 91. So I was only like 12, 11 or 12. So I, I was like, oh shit, I have to go to bed, but I'm going to stay up and watch that because that's crazy. It was either, I think it was the 10 o'clock news. I remember 
vividly thinking that there is, I'm just going to release my bias here. There is no justification for this. I, I was so cynical when I saw it. I was like, I don't care what they say in court. I don't care. I couldn't, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I was so, it permanently affected like my 11 year old brain about the police. I was absolutely, it was appalling. It was appalling. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's not something you'd want to ever watch. You remember watching it, right? They played it all the yeah. time. They didn't care they, who was they, watching. They, they ran it like it was no big deal. Yeah. And it was terrible. Kids should not have been seeing it, first of all. It was too graphic. It's, I mean, even though you don't see blood or anything, like it's just, it's obviously a human being like beaten by people of authority is terrible with weapons. It's terrible. So oh, he was being pummeled. It was, it was terrible. Uh, unreal. So King had been, he was drunk. He was on probation. He was speeding on the freeway. He refused to pull over and he led the CHP and then the LAPD on an eight mile pursuit. Uh, when they finally pulled over, they got out of their car. They were told to lie flat. Two of them did lie flat. Rodney King got on his hands and knees. Police tased him twice. And it was at this point that George Holiday, you know, heard the kerfuffle and got out his epic giant 1991 <laughs> camcorder, <laughs> propped it on his shoulder and started filming. Made sure there was the a tape in. Yeah, made sure there was a tape in there and started <laughs> filming. Kids do not understand this. They do not get no. it. And thank God he did. King testified that he said he was uh, called the N-word and told to, you're going to die, run. And he was called the N-word. And police say, no, he's running because he's, he's charging one of our officers. And that's why we started hitting him. None of this can be confirmed because there was a as typical LA fashion, there was a helicopter hovering over it, you know, a LAPD helicopter hovering and you can't hear anything. So I'm not going to go into the play by play, but it's 89 seconds and it's just several, several cops wailing on Rodney King. It, you know, trigger warning for people who don't handle this kind of thing while it's not easy to watch. He suffered serious injuries from the assault, including a broken leg burn and burns from the taser. His face looked like ground beef. Oh my God. It, he was like purple. The next, it, it, it's, it was terrible. So KTLA local news station bought the video from George holiday and aired it on the evening news. And that's the teaser that I, I saw. Then they, then they aired it. World went insane. And on March 15th, the four officers were indicted on charges of assault with a deadly weapon and excessive use of force. Two of them were also charged with filing false reports. So they also were accused of like fibbing when they were giving, you know, filling out the report of the incident. So those four officers were officers Kuhn, Powell, Briseno, and Wind. On April 29th, 1992, so a year and a month and a half later, essentially, all of the officers were found not guilty of all charges and the city just exploded. So the, uh, they called the LA riots. 63 people died and in the violence that happened over the course of six days. It was, I mean, I vividly remember it. It was bananas. There was nothing, there was no riding in, you know, within a few miles of my house, but it was, you know, it was just, it was crazy. Yeah. I can't even imagine like living near that. I, I can't imagine. And um, if you have seen, there's a famous award-winning OJ's documentary. It talks about OJ Simpson and the verdict and everything, but it, it does it in a really, really good way. It shows, it, it goes back and shows the context for, the history of racism in the LAPD and how people of color, especially black people have been treated in South Central and all over the, the city and how that, I mean, this was just a year before this, there had been a verdict 
for a Korean grocer had there, there's a lot of tension. There was a lot of tension in the eighties and nineties among Korean grocers, immigrants, they were often owned grocery stores. And then, um, the local African-American community and a, a little girl was killed. She, w- she had not been shoplifting. She, the grocer was like mistaken. She literally had paid for her bag of chips and like her drink and she was holding the her grocer shot. the little Yes. Girl. Yeah. And it was terrible. It was, um, Latasha Harlan's. Oh my God. She was only 15 years old and she was Ugh. shot in March, 1991. So it was like right around this time. And the Latasha thing was so bad. The woman was convicted. The, the grocer was convicted of like manslaughter or something and didn't serve time. She was given like a slap on the wrist. She was given like what? probation. She killed someone that she thought she's like, I thought she was shoplifting. It made no sense. She was just holding, and it was a freaking her little child. Book bag down. Yeah, she's holding her little book bag from school over her oh shoulder, and she's opening it to put her chips in. She had just paid for. Yeah, it was so the, the city was just already like just ready to blow, and then this oh, happened, sure. and everyone was like, "You got to be fucking kidding me!" I will say that yeah, I history dot com again, great article said under federal law, the officers could also be prosecuted for violating Rodney King's constitutional rights. And on April 17th, 1993, a federal jury convicted Kuhn and Powell for violating King's rights by their unreasonable use of force under color of law. Although Wind and Brissano were acquitted, most civil rights advocates considered the mixed verdict a victory. On August 4th, Kuhn and Powell were sentenced to two and a half years in prison for the beating of King. King received $3.8 million in a civil suit against Los Angeles Police Department. It wasn't a total loss, but obviously to, to, to not be convicted of the, in the criminal trial is really bad. Oh, my God. Yeah. It was crazy. So March 4th and – oh, March 5th is Patsy Cline. Died at age 30. I thought she was older than that. She died in a plane crash at age 30. Well, everyone looked like they were 50 when they were 30 back then. Yeah. But that that's just like every road trip when I was a kid, we listened to Patsy Cline in the car. Like we know all those, all her songs, like her greatest hits. Yeah, she was amazing. Love her. Love her. But yeah, just that's a. Did you see that TV movie? The one with, uh, who played her? Jessica Lang. Jessica Lang. Was it Jessica Lang? Yeah, you're right. It was called Sweet Dreams. Yep, Sweet Dreams. Ed Harris. Ed Harris played her husband. Yep. Ed Harris was hot back then. Yeah, he was. March 5th or and 6th, I don't really have anything. Oh, wait, that's not true. I have something for March 6th. Should I just do that one? This is, this is it for me. Uh, March 6th, 1978. Larry Flint, publisher of Hustler Magazine, Ugh. is shot by a white supremacist. Holy shit. I guess I never saw that movie because I didn't know this. Did you that know he was this? shot in general or that it was a white supremacist? I, I didn't know why he was in a wheelchair. Oh. You yeah. knew that? Yeah. My knowledge of porn kings. Yeah, I guess the... so. You really like into the <laughs> hustler empire or what? So the injury left him paralyzed. That's why he's in a wheelchair. Uh, the shooter was this piece of shit, Joseph Paul Franklin. He was a white supremacist and mass murderer who ambushed Larry Flint and his lawyer, Gene Reeves, in Georgia. He shot both men, apparently in retaliation for... The depiction of an interracial couple in a recent issue of Hustler. I mean, what a gem! Piece of shit. Anyway, he uh, on top of the injuries that of you know he was paralyzed. He was in constant pain basically and had to take painkillers. Got addicted to painkillers and overdosed at one point and had a stroke. So any of our listeners wondering why he talked he talked the way he did toward the end of his life? That's why because he had had a stroke. I was going to list the crimes of this piece of shit Franklin, but. <laughs> There are so many, and they're so gross. He's just so so awful. 
you know, suffice to say, Franklin targeted Jewish and black people with violent ambush style assaults between July 1977 and August 1980. These attacks led to the deaths of 13 people and injuries of several others, including a prominent civil rights activist, Vernon Jordan. So Vernon Jordan is a side story on this because that's a fucking banana story. Vernon Jordan, at the time of his shooting, at the time of being shot, was he was the head of the National Urban League. And he was shot by Franklin in Indiana in a, in a hotel parking lot in 1980. And police initially, so that's two years after this piece of shit shot Flint. He went and shot Vernon Jordan. Police initially believed the shooting was a result of some kind of domestic dispute. But then they started to hone in on Franklin enough that they put him on trial. Motherfucker was acquitted. He was acquitted. The only reason we know he shot Vernon Jordan is because he confessed to it a decade later when he was like, you know, after he was, it was done and he had like 900 million years of prison. Like he was just, so they, they, they tried him and he got off. And this is a really random like side factoid, but uh, President Jimmy Carter visited Jordan in the hospital. And that story, that story of that visit was the first story to ever air on CNN. Weird. Really? CNN, was, CNN was new. It was 1980. So CNN was brand new. And it was the first story that they ever covered was wow. that, that visit. Ver- Vernon Jordan, by the way, died about a year ago. Yeah, I just think that's so weird. This whole, he was, this asshole, this Joseph Paul Franklin was never actually tried for Larry Flint's shooting. I guess, I guess when they know they have like a few murders in the bag, they just focus on that because then they don't have to gather as much evidence and they they know that they're going to put them away. But insane. It is insane. He targeted a lot of interracial couples. This bothered him. And um, a a synagogue, a man outside a synagogue. The guy's garbage. psycho. Ambulatory piece of shit. Anyway. (laughs) If you don't have anything else, we can just head to the rec room. My my rec room contributions are lame this these past two weeks. We're still plugging through Succession, which is awesome. Yeah, and I can't handle watching more than one show at a time. But uh, I put on last night. I watched my brilliant friend on HBO. Did you guys? I've heard of that. I never saw that. There's three seasons. It's based on books. It's about female relationships, but about two friends in particular, like childhood friends that grow up. It's subtitled, but it's really, really good. I'll check it out. It's not funny, right? Mm-mm. Did you see any movies? I don't think so. I just have a few. Oh, I'm lying. Fucking hours of my life I'll never get back. <sighs> that Nightmare Alley one that Bradley Cooper. Oh, yeah. Terrible. Wow. First of all, I don't really have an opinion about Bradley Cooper as an actor. I could take him or leave him. Right. It doesn't get on my nerves. I liked him in Silver Linings Playbook. I thought he was good in that. Mm-hmm. So annoying in this movie. Oh, no. It was like he was miscast or something. Oh. Like, I, I couldn't take him seriously as whatever this role he was playing. Kind of like that noir kind of style. Yeah. It looks cool. It's so fucking boring and stupid. Just wow. don't waste your time. Okay. Don't waste your time. I don't understand why it's nominated for anything. I did try to watch that one. And then I've just been binging Downton Abbey again. Yeah. So we started watching because I'm always looking for comedies. We started watching two different ones. One we're watching with my sister when she comes to hang out with us. It's um, Pen Fifteen. Oh my god! How <laughs> hilarious! I knew you would love that one. That show. So that funny. show. Literally, I could pee my pants watching it. It is so ridiculous. Did you get I, to the one where she's doing the drums? The drum. Yes. The drum. <laughs> she reminds me of you in that. <laughs> When she's like flipping out and then she barfs. She's amazing. 
You know, I oh. will say when it first started, I we're so fucking old when it first started. And it was like 2000 and it showed them starting seventh grade. I was like, oh, like, <laughs> I don't have two, like a 2000. I was already a fucking adult, basically. You know what I mean? Like I, I don't have like nostalgia for 2000 or whatever. Um, but then there are so many things that don't change about that, that age. Mm-hmm. All, they're all the same. We were all the same. Yep. <laughs> we were all the same, like weird, Awkwardly awkward, gross. like, yeah, gross. Oh, oh, just, I love that they're the weird, like they're the, they're, they're not popular. Like they're the weird girls and that makes it even better. Like, cause they're, it's just, but they're, but they're strangely confident. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're so gross. I love when one of them will be like trying to be funny and the only other person laughing is the is the other best friend. Like they're no so one else. sweet. They are so cute together. <laughs> they though. Are like they're really the cute. sweetest friends ever, but yeah. they are so repulsive. <laughs> but that show is hilarious. <laughs> I love that show. It's very funny. Yeah. And I was like, I don't get the pen 15. And Daniel's like, it's penis on a calculator. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh. <laughs> I was like, oh, like boobs, you know, like. Oh, that's funny. Uh, thanks for clearing that up, Daniel. Yeah. <laughs> so funny. And then another comedy that we're watching is Ghosts. So this is one of those shows that was a UK show. And then because they think Americans don't speak British English, they remade it here. And they, <laughs> you know, they do the office, like everything. Yeah. And my friend at work was like, oh, I've got a comedy for you. You should watch Ghosts. But I don't remember what, like, you know, channel it's on or whatever. So I come home and I tell Daniel and he puts on, it's on, um, it's on HBO max. And he's like, okay, let's put it on. And it, they're all like British and it's at a manor that's haunted. It's these funny ghosts. And it's almost like these goofy roommates and they all died in this manor. And, um, oh, I'll check that one out. That sounds good. And it's just like, it's, it's just very funny and like very silly. So I, so we started the British one cause Daniel just assumed that's the one I meant. I had no idea there was an American one. So we figured out after the fact because I'm like searching it on the internet and I see there's an American one. I go in the next day at work. I'm like, so we started Ghost, but the British one. She's like, there's a British one. Like we're, we're completely on like different like wavelengths. So where's she watching hers? I don't know. I guess it's a network. Um, it must be Uh-oh. like a. I don't. I don't have cable anymore, so I don't have like. Neither do I. But I think it's really funny. The premise is so funny. Oh, I'll check that one out. So we started that, and then we started this. It's a Swedish Danish show from from 2011 called. The Bridge. Have you heard about this? It's kind of famous, very popular, like Scandinavian crime procedural. It's about. I think my parents watched The Bridge. They, that sounds familiar. It's very, it's like very like acclaimed. And um, it's about a crime that happens on the bridge that links um, Sweden and Denmark. And then the, you know, the detectives from each, you know, it's the jurisdiction overlaps. So the detectives from Sweden and the detectives from um, Denmark have to work together to, to, catch this guy kind of reminds me a little bit it's got like seven vibes like just hmm. sort of the similar similar villain or whatever but it's very good very good acting and um did you watch uh killing eve i watched the first two seasons yeah me too we stopped after two like yeah. isn't she really fucked up and funny though mm-hmm. like she cracked i was she made me laugh so much oh yeah she's hilarious how good is she at accents Oh she's my amazing. God. She's like, she's it's ridiculous. incredible. She's incredible. Yeah. I love her. Um, that guy's in that. The guy, the guy that's the, her like Russian. Oh, I love connection. him. Yeah. I love him. He's got a great smile. There's something about her him. That's handler very, or whatever yeah, he is. Yeah. There's something about like his face. That's like very, he's not attractive, but it, there's something very like pleasant about yeah, his smile or something to look at. He is the, he is the Danish detective in this. Oh, he's okay. a very famous, apparently Danish actor. I had no idea. I assumed he was like Russian or English, but. 
Did yeah. you um the what it was what is that actress's name? The girl who from Killing Eve. Joe Joe Jody Josie Comer or something like that. Yeah. Jody Comer. I yeah, I love her. I think she sh- should be in more stuff because I think she's gonna awesome. be incredibly famous. I I just think Yeah, it's like inevitable, right? Or she's gonna yeah. win some kind of award or something because she she's just too good. She was uncanny. Like she's she just was in, so you know what I first saw her? Dr. Foster. About, yes. And she was so annoying. I fucking hate that. that show. And I that show is terrible. I people fucking love that show, Lauren. We're weirdos. No, that show was so annoying it's and so, so stupid. Like, she was just an asshole. The doctor, yeah, was the doctor Dr. was an asshole. We're supposed idiot. to be on her team, and she's an idiot. No, everything she did, I was like, oh my god, I fucking hate you. Where was I? I guess I was living with my sister when I was watching that. No, not that old. I was streaming it, but I would just complain to my sister because my sister watched it. I was like, she's such a, she's such an idiot. I would think she's terrible. How does she still have a license to be a doctor? Yeah, yeah, she makes like horrible decisions throughout the whole series. It's so stupid. I wasn't rooting for her at all. Like. So weird. No, it's terrible. But yeah, that's where I first saw her because she was the other woman. Yeah, that's right. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to give us a review. Uh, it really helps us out. And follow us on Instagram at Old School Podcast. And we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Yeah, I'll talk to you soon. Okay, have a good night. Yeah. Bye. Bye.